when I published Ulysses by James Joyce in my little bookshop called Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Look, look, the dust is growing. My branches lost Lord James. Stately, plump, buck bargain. All perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said yes, I will, yes. Ladies and gentlemen, roll up for the greatest show on earth, where la grande littérature meets le théâtre du grand guignol, where women become men and men become women, then dress up in their undergarments. And for those of you so inclined, where beatings are dished out that would make Leopold von Sacker Massoch blush. There are talking soap bars, chiding fans and telltale bedcoits, and a world-exclusive performance from the newly born Bloom Octoplets. So step right up and buy your ticket to this Hall of Mirrors, or should that be Hall of Mirrors within Mirrors, that our impresario, Mr James Joyce of Dublin, Paris, Zurich and Trieste, gave the humble name of Cesse. All, <laughs> all of which to say, welcome to Bloomcast. Oh, Here we are. So Here sweet, are. Adam. Episode 7. Episode 7. Um, and Cersei, now as our listeners will have got from that introduction, I'm sure if they were listening, listening carefully, Cersei <laughs> is written in the form of a play. Um, so before we, before we dive into Cersei, um, look, now we all know that theatre is an unpleasant, uncomfortable and embarrassing experience <laughs> for everyone involved. But Universally, <laughs> all the time. But let's the first, your first repressed memory <laughs> makes its way out. <laughs> We're, we're, we're well down the path of those by episode seven. Um, so let's begin this episode. Alice, Lex, what is the best production you have ever seen in the theatre and why? Go ahead. Okay, well, I, I, the, the, when you thought of this question, I had a, an initial brain flash, which was um, 10 years ago. My friend Belina, uh, stage manager of a, of a troupe in Philadelphia called the Pig Iron Theatre, experimental, avant-garde, um, you know, exclusively contemporary um, plays and they decided they were going to make an exception and do one play that wasn't avant-garde and contemporary and so they put on Shakespeare's Twelfth Night Mm -hmm. and let me tell you this was the greatest performance of Shakespeare I've ever seen and probably the greatest performance of of any play they did it that now Twelfth Night takes place in Illyria which is the Balkans Mm -hmm. and so they did a whole Balkan um, you know, jazz band, uh, the Balkan kind of, you know, gangster uh, cheek. And uh, it was the funniest, the funniest uh, performance. Shakespeare's comedies are not mm. reputed to hold up always in their humor. <laughs> and the guy playing Sir Toby Belch in his bathrobe and cowboy boots, it was just the funniest performance I'd ever seen. Malvolio mm. uh, in his uh, in his garters, you know, mm. this kind of the unmanned steward, uh, all of the musical interludes, the stage. And so I just remember that uh, performance of Twelfth Night um, by this radical theatre troupe in Philadelphia, number one for me. Yeah, I also have a Shakespeare play. Um, this was, oof, I guess, three years ago now, um, 2019 in London, Nicholas Heitner's production of Midsummer Night's Dream at the Bridge Theatre. Um, and I think because I had been studying it that spring at school and not really had the chance to see it. And as Lex said, these comedies, um, they really can come alive on the stage. And I really remember we, we were standing um, for it 
and 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 that was part part of what was so fantastic about it was the interaction between the actors and the audience um and i remember act five very vividly just just being so funny mm-hmm. possibly because we had you know bought a drink in the intermission um how do they do the transformation into animals that's one of our themes for today um <laughs> oh not not so not so um memorably not so memorably <laughs> and not so seriously it was i i just i, I just basically they made act five you know sort of the rude mechanicals and the play within a play they made it kind of like comprehensive GCSE drama students practicing for a play. And I think <laughs> um, for an English audience, uh, it, it was it was hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just as a quick aside before I talk about mine, my, my one star turn at um, high school theatre was playing the bear in A Winter's Tale. Um, but the only... That's a huge role. Well, I mean, it's it's a hugely important Excellent role. Excellent Pursued by Bear. Um... One, of the be- one of the best stage <laughs> directions <laughs> ever. The trouble is my school could only get hold of what was essentially a comedy bear outfit. You know, think of your your idea of uh, Goldilocks and the three bears, how the bears would look in that. I think and... you were a really good bear. I can totally see why they cast you. <laughs> well, it brought the house down every night. It was extraordinary. Um, on the subject of so bringing the house Now the repressed down... memory comes out a little bit further. <laughs> a little bit further out. <laughs> Oh, we are performing Circe with Adam as Bloom today. Holy crap, here we go. <laughs> Into Adam's subconscious. Um, Tell us, Adam. Well, actually, this might be quite revealing in itself, is that this is actually a play I didn't see the production of. I saw a record, uh, I saw a video of the production of. Um, so for quite a few years now, I've been sort of vaguely obsessed with the play uh, Ubu Roi by mm. Alfred, Alfred Jarry. Mm-hmm. Um, so first performance in about uh, 1894, 1896, something like that. Um, and this is, for, for listeners who don't know it, so Jerry was um, a sort of an early um, practitioner, I guess, of sort of theatre of the... Absurd. Of, of the absurd, exactly. Um, so Ubu Roi is essentially a mashup of Macbeth, Hamlet and Lear, uh, but sort of te- jettisoning all of the subtleties of these <laughs> three plays and concentrating on the uh, pure lust for, for power, in mm. a sense. Um, and I came to Jacques through his 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 other sort of the school that he founded, Pataphysics, um, which is a completely different a subject for a completely different podcast, probably completely different series of podcasts. Um, but stay tuned. Uh, yeah. Um, but Uburwa is um, so yeah. So say performed uh, in about I think I think eighteen ninety six and brought the house down on his first night. I mean the you know Parisian. Um, High society was completely shocked from the very first word, which, uh, as you may know, is... Il a bien épaté la bourgeoisie. Exactly. <laughs> the, the very first word of Ubu Roi? I don't know. Merde. Okay, so it's a kind gosh. of... Uh, a jarry-coined kind of corruption of merde, meaning shit. Mm. Um, very difficult to translate. Mm. And caused an absolute scandal. Um, and anyway, so... I was getting quite obsessed with this play, in part, I think, because of the political moment we were living through, because there were so many ways, particularly to engage with Trump, uh, so many attempts to engage mm. with Trump and you know his motivations and his politics. But things like Shakespeare, you know, Shakespeare's kings, Shakespeare's uh, sort of tyrants are too subtle oh, for Trump. Oh, I so disagree. Oh, do you think? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Richard III. We, my book no, club did Richard III during the Trump election. There was a, a very famous public theatre production of Anthony and Cleopatra. Huh. That staged. They, oh no, sorry, not and of uh, Julius Caesar. That staged Julius Caesar as Trump. Oh he yes, was assassinated in New York. on stage, and it was picked up by the far right, and it inspired 
that's what inspired Greenbat's book. That's what inspired James Shapiro's book. See, I would still contend that Shakespeare's Julius Caesar is too psychologically complex for for Donald Trump. Mm. Um, And I think Jerry's Ubura is the perfect encapsulation of Mm. this kind of, essentially sort of somebody who is so driven and corrupted Mm. and sort of ruled by their appetites Mm. um, and and almost nothing else. Exactly. Um, But anyway, to come to the production... um, so as I said, I didn't see this one, but um, it was put on by Cheek by Jowl, uh, yeah. the British theatre yeah. company, Declan Donnelly, yeah. who's a great friend of the bookstore. And he very kindly sent me a link to a video of it. Now, he staged this um, first in Paris, but then it went uh, all over all mm. over Europe and all over the world mm. in sort of 2014, 2015. Um, so just in the build up to, to Trump's election. And the action was basically transferred to a bourgeois Parisian apartment. So mm. during a dinner party and the, the the thing, the whole thing was being filmed by a, by a young teenager. So you had the kind of the mm. all of the codes, all of the um, sort of, uh, let's say, uh, sort of refined behavior of the of the, of the guests. And then every so often it would they would pause and they would they would sort of descend into the the, the kind of the chaos, the darkness, the depths mm. of um, of and. Mm. Um, that came back to me quite a lot, actually, when I was mm. uh, rereading Cersei. Um, just that idea. And I did wonder if mm. Joyce would have come across Jerry. I mean, I, I suspect they probably wouldn't have met because Jerry died mm. in 1907. Mm. But Yates, for example, was mm. at that premiere. Mm. Mm. Um, and in fact, when asked afterwards what, what he made of it, uh, he came up with that very famous line, sort of after, I'm, which I'm going to paraphrase here, but basically after all of the refinements of the the 19th century art, you come to Jerry and he said, you know, after all of that, uh, after us, the, the savage God. Mm. And that was, uh, <laughs> that was the, the point at which, uh, which Jerry left us. And, and thus the 20th century begins. Indeed, indeed. But I, the only thing I, I would, what I would say to that, Adam, too, is it's interesting that you cite a recording of a play. Mm-hmm. So I don't know for me that that counts. Boy. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you know, at the very beginning, I said that I found theatre an unpleasant, embarrassing and uncomfortable experience. <laughs> I and here's much, why. I would much rather watch it at home. Well, <laughs> on the screen. On the screen. Should we go further into Adam's subconscious with some correspondence? Yes. I just, honestly, I just sit there terrified people are going to forget their lines or something is going to go wrong. That is why I can't go to the theatre. I, I feel deeply, deeply afraid that mm. the whole thing is going to collapse in front of my eyes. And Listeners, Adam Adam is actually reclining on a on a Viennese couch <laughs> right now. Um, we've had the microphone right up to him and he's got one of these big, uh, you know, oriental pillows behind his head. So, uh, you know, stay tuned for uh, uh, deeper depths of, uh, of Adam's subconscious. And I'm going to try and deflect that into, as you say, <laughs> correspondence. <laughs> um, so I have a I have a couple um, of bits, not exactly correspondence, but my uh, my friend and colleague, our rare books manager Ben so Brown, lovely. went to Dublin this past weekend, and he sent me a photo from Sweeney's Pharmacy. Now I don't know if either of you have visited Sweeney's Pharmacy. Just yes, I, well, I was there briefly, but I didn't see the I didn't see what you're about to show mm. us. Well, so Sweeney's, from what I understand it, because I haven't visited, but it's just got it's essentially preserved, mm. sort of from more or less the time. That Joyce was writing, which is amazing. Yeah, it's one of it's one of the places from the book that you can walk in and mm. really inhabit. Mm. Um, I mean, Martello Tower. You don't you don't have sort of the inside bit as 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 it, what it would have been for the breakfast with um, with Stephen and Buck Mulligan. Mm. But Sweeney's Pharmacy, you can walk in and for a moment you are Leopold Bloom mm. ordering a bar of soap. But isn't it also the true true of the streets and and the geography of Dublin that it hasn't actually changed that much? 
That's true. Eccles Street, of course, has changed because yeah. there's a um, a there's cause a hospital right? on where where Bloom's house would have been, mm-hmm. um, and the James Joyce Center is just mm-hmm. a couple blocks away. Yeah, where we were. But anyway, so Ben Ben was at Sweeney's Pharmacy, and he was leafing through the visitors book, and he happened to find one from the. If I can read this 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 handwriting, it's the twenty sixth of August, twenty twenty one, or as it's written here, le vingt six août, because of course this message is in French. Ce n'est pas du lys. Merci pour tout. An affection, Emmanuel Macron. Oh, now, wow. we are recording this on the, what are we, the 18th of April? 20th. 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 <laughs> Excuse me. Let's start that again. Your sense of time. <laughs> <laughs> We're recording this on the 20th of April. So we are, in fact, between the two, two elections. Two rounds. Two yes. elections. Listeners. Suspended will... in the electoral purgatory. That is the Circe Cer- <laughs> of French politics. Listeners, you will know the result by the time this comes out, because this mm. episode is coming out on the 7th of May. Mm-hmm. So this is a message either from our newly re-elected president or former, our former... <laughs> the former wunderkind. <laughs> yes. Uh, in the fallen Daedalus like from uh, from the skies and uh, and leaving. Well, I can only imagine will be a depressingly dystopian France behind it. Let's hope that that doesn't happen. Let's hope that doesn't happen. But um, those should we of us... re-record this bit as if it does happen? Right. We should, we should do both <laughs> scenario A and scenario B in, in which Le Pen is president and we're all fleeing the country. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So do you want to... So the Sweeney's Pharmacy um, and should we... The the second bit of correspondence, which was my favorite bit of, uh, of feedback, uh, fan mail. Who, who sent us this fan mail? Oh, this is so lovely. So this is... Um, Can I read this? Yeah, of course you can. Yeah, yeah. So I just, I, I, this is um, Sam Jordison. Um, Sam is a, a journalist, a books journalist. He was um, used to work at The Guardian and still still writes for them. And um, he uh, he was one who founded their Not the Booker Prize, which ran, um, ran for quite a few years. Mm. Um, from my point of view, Sam is also very importantly, the um, one half of Gallybagger Press, um, a small, radical, extraordinary British press. <laughs> They put out the likes of people like um, Preeti Tanija, like uh, Alex Phoebe, like Paul Ewan. Wait, like, oh, wait, wait like I, I've you. heard of them. I think I've heard of them. Wait, <laughs> did Adam, they publish, didn't they publish please, a novelist they named did, your book? Adam Biles? <laughs> well, wasn't there feeding, t- feeding yeah, time? Wasn't there feeding time? I, is this the same press, them? Adam, that you're telling, telling us about? It might be. Um, are, you, are, you, are you a novelist, Adam? <laughs> But where can one order a copy of Feeding Time? Adam? You can order how's a signed you, copy from ShakespeareCompany.com if you want. ShakespeareCompany.com, Feeding Time by Adam Byers. Although, as my, as my colleagues like to joke, Plug it's, it it's the unsigned ones that are the most valuable. Um, <laughs> but one, one, actually thing, one thing that's also interesting for this podcast is they also publish Lucy Ellman, uh, author of Ducks Newburyport, the, book, the novel that was shortlisted for the Booker Prize a couple of years ago, who is the daughter of Richard Ellman, mm. Joyce's oh. most... Uh, mm. Famous biographer. Famous biographer, yeah. yeah before yeah. before I read out this lovely, lovely note from Sam, I do just want to point out that Macron's note um, is less offensive than Justin Bieber's note that he left in the house of Anne Frank when he visited, and he wrote in the visitor's book, I think she would have been a believer. That's the worst thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let that pass without comment. <laughs> read Sam's Okay, shall we? Sam's. Okay, so Sam... <laughs> what does Sam have to say? Sam says... Uh, so also... From Sam, publisher of Feeding Time. Uh, meanwhile, important fan mail. I just love the Bloomcast. I do wish to flatter you, but I'm also very sincere when I say that I think it's the best terror part of a book in a podcast that I've listened to. And for both professional and nerdy reasons, I have listened to a lot, in capitals, of these things. Imbibing your collective wisdom and then reading slash listening to the book is like an ongoing first look into Chapman's Homer. 
It's wonderful and funny. The hand job this week had me creasing. Thank you and please pass on my admiration to Alice and to Lex as well. Thank you, Sam. There you go. Thank you, Sam. It was it was great. And I, this morning I was really, I was thinking yeah. to myself about um, how, in a way, I feel like this is the first book I've ever read, read mm-hmm. in the in as the British would say, properly read. That that um, this experience, both with you guys mm-hmm. and of this community of readers mm-hmm. um, and readers out loud, um, it's been a, it's been. I think every book, you know, should be at some point read this way mm. um, because I've appreciated so much in such more fine detail and with such richness and benefited from the intelligence of so many other mm. um, kind and curious uh, readers that um, I really do feel like I've never read a book before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this experience um, and even it's 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 kind of weaving its way into all kind of moments of my life yeah. on, on my bike on, um, yeah, on this morning on the way here, listening to the Beatles White mm. Album, which to me felt like the most hallucinatory, mm. um, you know, Cersei-esque, uh, <laughs> you know, Beatles record. And um, was thinking yesterday when I got my third vaccine shot that I'd been given Hermes, you know, Molly to, mm. as my talisman, <laughs> as my Bloomian potato. And so um, yeah. it's really, uh, it's really um, it been an extraordinary experience. And thank you, Sam, for, for being part of it, too. Yeah, I really agree, Lex. I think um, there's something, I mean, I, I know I was joking with you guys a few weeks ago uh, when I sort of, I think we've all been submerged with quite a lot of work uh, around this project, but also around uh, our, our day jobs as well um, for the past few months. And I compared uh, working on Joyce and working on Ulysses to the Hotel California. You know, you can, you can check out, but you can never leave. Um, but I think the thing you're right. This is an incredibly positive thing because what you've essentially got here, and I guess I think this relates to Cersei, is you're getting as close as you can get to mapping out another person's mind. Mm. You know, this um, the way you know reading any book is an, an approach of two to human minds. I think probably more than any other mm. medium can give. But reading a book in this way feels like a sort of a concerted effort to understand how the mind of this genius a hundred years ago worked and um yeah and i i completely agree lex has been to this point uh a profound and rewarding experience and i'm gonna miss it yeah mm. what, what i would add to is is the effort for me what's been so remarkable about it is it's been to lex's point almost multi-directional in the sense that you read the words we, we bounce our ideas off each other, we listen to it, we hear from other readers, we read the secondary sources, we read the original uh, text that Joyce is riffing on. It is so fully immersive in every sense of the word, I mean, in, in terms of um, your s- s- senses and different kind of kind of text. So it's been um, also profound. And I also, I, I, I kind of feel, I mean, I think we're already noticing the effects of it, but I also feel that I wouldn't really like so many things when you're in it, you can't really tell what's happening. Mm. And I really feel that the effects of having done this are going to come out in the summer and in the autumn. I I feel that in some way, the legacy of this podcast is going to work, continue to work on me and stay with me for much of this year. And I won't really know and be able to describe it until December. Yeah, I think... That's that's a really nice a really nice thought because I've also been feeling a certain melancholy that it's mm. coming to an end. I mean, we have two more Bloomcasts mm. in which we are going to discuss this, and then mm. the final live Bloomcast from the American Library on mm. Bloomsday itself. Mm. Um, but I was I was just the just yesterday mm. editing 
um, the the recordings of Eumaeus, and mm. I was looking at my my copy of of Ulysses and seeing how little, little of it left, yeah. is is left. And mm. so that thought that this is something which yeah you know we will conclude this project on June the sixteenth, but this this engagement with this book is never going to really conclude. It sort of it it goes it, some way to address that. It melancholy. can't. I mean, it can't. Yeah. So, Cersei. Uh, Cersei. So normally by at this stage, one of us would take on uh, the summary of um, of an episode. But considering this time that we're only talking about one episode and considering the fact that Cersei itself is such a multi-layered, to put it lightly, um, episode, we have decided to somehow split it between the three of us. So let's see how that goes. Well, I also think three is important because <clears throat> it gets the tri- tripartite conception of the soul and certainly Freud's uh, tripartite conception of the soul so it's fitting and it's fitting well of course and it's fitting that it's three okay so which of us is the ego which is the super ego and which is the id <laughs> well the one, who, the one who jumps in the American Lex is, is the, certainly the ego Lex is for the sure Lex is the id. the id I'm the ego and you're the super ego yeah. it's so clear <laughs> it's so clear <laughs> Okay, well, the id, uh, the id will speak up here. So I, what I'm going to do is the is the um, is the is speak is to, from a place of pure desire and sensuality. Uh, I'm going to speak about the Homeric version of 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 the Circe story. Um, so here's here's a bit of of uh, Robert Fagel's, um, one of the kind of classic translators. Of now they're they're legion, including the new translation by Emily Wilson we talked about before. Um, so here is the moment in Book Ten where um, Odysseus is going to Circe's palace. His, his um, men have already been turned by her, by the witch Circe, uh, into, uh, into pigs. And he's going off now to brave this great danger. Leaving the ship and shore, I headed inland, clambering up through hushed, entrancing glades until as I was nearing the halls of Circe, skilled in spells, approaching her palace, Hermes, god of the golden wand, crossed my path. And he looked for all the world like a young man sporting his first beard, just in the prime and warm pride of youth, and grasped me by the hand and asked me kindly, where are you going now, my unlucky friend, trekking over the hills alone in unfamiliar country? And your men are all in there in Circe's palace, cooped like swine, hawk by jowl in the styes. Have you come to set them free? Well, I warn you, you won't get home yourself. You'll stay right there, trapped with all the rest. But wait. I can save you, free you from that great danger. Look, here is a potent drug. Take it to Circe's halls. Its power alone will shield you from the fatal day. Let me tell you of all the witch's subtle craft. She'll mix you a potion, lace the brew with drugs, but she'll be powerless to bewitch you, even so. The magic herb I give will fight her spells. Now here's your plan of action, step by step. The moment Circe strikes with her long, thin wand, you draw your sharp sword sheathed at your hip and rush her fast as if to run her through. She'll cower in fear and coax you to her bed. But don't refuse the goddess's bed. Not then. Not if she's to release your friends and treat you well yourself. But have her swear the binding oath of the blessed gods. She'll never plot some new intrigue to harm you once you lie there naked. Never unman you. Strip away your courage. With that, the giant killer handed over the magic herb, pulling it from the earth, and Hermes showed me all its name and nature. Its root is black and its flower white as milk, and the gods call it Molly. <laughs> Dangerous for a mortal man, or Molly, I suppose. Dangerous for a mortal man. MDMA. Uh, dangerous for a mortal man to pluck from the soil, but not for deathless gods. All lies within their power. 
So we have three beats of this story that, that are reproduced by Joyce um, in Circe. Um, we have the first beat, which is the transformation of, of Odysseus's men by Circe into swine, uh, and then ultimately back again. We have this moly or molly, M-O-L-Y is how it's, uh, it's, it's spelled in, in Homer or in the English translation, which is a kind of a talisman, a kind of a special, mm-hmm. a special drug. Um, and uh, this talisman, um, we will see, makes possible this heroic confrontation, which is not a violent confrontation. It's a confrontation in which Odysseus, with his sharp sword uh, sheathed in his hip, Alla Freud, um, Alla uh, confronts Circe, um, uh, kind of overmans her, uh, wins both his Alla Freud wins both his men's um, uh, salvation back into you know hum- humanity and also the bed and the union of of, of the bed w- with Circe. So um, those are kind of the three beats that I think we will will see the transformation into animal moles and animality, this talisman um, that comes from Hermes, which which Joyce described to Budgeon as um, the the gift of presence of mind, mm-hmm. um, which which I think is, is a theme we'll, we'll we'll see, and and finally this heroic confrontation uh, in which Odysseus um, heroically saves his men and uh, and is reconciled in the bed um, of Circe. So that's the action of the Odyssey. Let's go to the action and uh, imaginary action of this episode. So I'm going to read what actually happens and Adam is going to fill in with um, what is imagined. So it's midnight, uh, the witch starting to be the witching hour and we find ourselves in... So no longer June 16th, June 17th now. It is, yes, midnight June 17th. Um, And we find ourselves in Bella Cohen's brothel in nighttime, which is the red light district of Dublin. The scene is one of squalor and degradation. Who else is there? We might be surprised to find that Sissy Caffrey and Eddie Boardman from Norsica are there, along with two British soldiers, Private Carr and Private Compton, uh, who are followed by a very drunk Stephen and Stephen's friend, Vincent Lynch. Stephen, despite or perhaps because of his drunkenness, is making a point about the primacy of gesture over any other form of expression. Bloom is following Stephen and Lynch, so he's also there. Um, he already has bought himself some chocolate and bread, but he's still hungry and he goes into a pork butcher to buy pig's cribine and sheep's trotter. Having bought them, he continues to rush to follow Stephen and Lynch, is crippled by a stitch, and then nearly <laughs> knocked down by a corporation sand strewer. Right, so this is when we have the first um, hallucination, the first fantasy um, we'll maybe come on to decide what is the best word to actually talk about these, mm, um, these, these visions Vision, maybe, of yeah. Blooms. Um, and the first is an apparition, in fact, by his late father, Rudolf, um, who, of course, uh, Bloom and Molly named their uh, departed son mm. after. And Rudolf scolds Bloom for his frivolousness with money, for abandoning Judaism. Um, which is kind of ironic considering it was actually Rudolf who uh, converted to Christianity, and for the friends he chose when he was at high school. Then Molly shows up, dressed in the Turkish clothes she wore in Mm. Bloom's dream from the night before, Mm. and accompanied by a camel in a turban, no less. Molly insists on being called (laughs) Mrs. Marion, which which harks back to um, how Boylan uh, addressed his letter uh, to Molly from, from earlier on in the book. Bloom stutters and scrapes in front of Molly, trying to explain why he failed to pick up her soap from Sweeney's Pharmacy. Soap which then appears, for some reason, <laughs> recites a couplet <laughs> and reveals 
It's a wonderful couplet, by the way. That's it is lovely, we'll come yeah. back to that. And <laughs> reveals the pharmacist's face within its bubbles. Uh, the pharmacist then tells Bloom how much he owes. Rather fancy. May, may I vocalise the soap? Here's what the soap says. We're a capital couple, our Bloom and I. He brightens the earth, I polish the sky. Lovely Thank you, soap. Mr. Soap. A second extended fantasy comes hot on the hills of the first, when Gert, with Gertie McDowell berating Bloom for his earlier antics on the beach. Then one of Bloom's exes, Josie Breen, appears. She pours scorn on Bloom for visiting this part of the city. Bloom tries out the alibi he plans to use on Molly later that day for his whereabouts this evening, namely that he was seeing a production of the play Leia, which Mrs. Breen gives short shrift. Bloom asks her to join him for a walk and recall a day at the races they shared some 14 years earlier. Why exactly that's important, we'll never know, as Mrs. Breen fades away before it's complete. So as she fades from his side, he forges on through Nighttown in search of Stephen. We learn that there was a scene between Buck Mulligan and Stephen. Bloom realises that he was foolish to buy the meat and gives it to a dog that's been following him. <laughs> as he does so, two policemen pass by in the outer world. Yes. Fades to a new fantasy. So two police officers pass by and potentially accost Bloom. I say it's not entirely clear from the text if he has any interaction with them at all. Um, but at least the police officers of Bloom's fantasy accuse him of committing a public nuisance. Uh, from there, the fantasy quickly plunges into a full-on courtroom drama. During the trial, Bloom claims to be British, citing his father's claim that he fought in the Boer War. A fiction writer as well. Uh, witnesses are called Miles Crawford and Philip Beaufoy. Um, Philip Beaufoy is a name for attentive readers may be familiar from the story that Bloom read when he was on the toilet in Calypso earlier that day. Um, Beaufoy immediately accuses Bloom of plagiarism. Up next is Mary Driscoll, uh, the Bloom's former housekeeper, who accuses Bloom essentially of assault. Uh, Bloom doesn't put up much of a, a defence, but just mumbles incoherently in response. Then J.J. Malloy is called on to defend Bloom, but does more harm than good as he tries to argue that there's some conspiracy afoot against Bloom, before pinning his hopes on the court giving Bloom, quotes, the benefit of the doubt. A defence which falls apart when Mrs. Bellingham and Mrs. Torboys appear to accuse Bloom of improper advances. Bloom begs Mrs. Torboys to castigate him as he richly deserves. We should say these, these characters don't appear anywhere else in the book. These are kind of proper society ladies who represent the kind of women Bloom is presumably afraid of. Indeed. Um, we then hear again from the quotes of the Bloom's bed and see that the jury includes the nameless one, our guide through the Cyclops episode. So back in the world, the hard world, Bloom pushes on through the fog. He hears sad piano music and meets Zoe Higgins, who's an English prostitute. Um, he takes out his talisman, as Lex was mentioning, um, in, in, in Ulysses, it's a lucky potato that was given to him by his mother. Zoe asks... She takes a talisman and then she asks for a cigarette. Can I just say, don't we all need a good lucky potato to get us through a hard time? <laughs> Shriveled, small, um, hard potato. So he asks for, for a cigarette from Bloom and Bloom replies that the mouth can be engaged in better things than smoking. And Zoe then urges him to make a stump speech of it. Indeed. And after this invitation from Zoe, we once again plunge into Bloom's fantasies, this time political. Um, <laughs> Bloom is named Lord Mayor of Dublin uh, and then delivers a somewhat incoherent speech about technology. Very Bloom. This gives rise to a parade in which he is then declared Leopold I and immediately dumps Molly for a more appropriate wife. Over the next few pages, Bloom announces the founding of the new Bloom Museum orders the man in the brown Macintosh and other enemies shot, and even manages to convince the citizen to love him. That sounds very ubuhua to me. Mm. <laughs> After more policies for social improvement are announced, the fantasy, 
The fantasy descends into a fight between the Blue Mites and the Anti-Blue Mites. During the ensuing chaos, Bloom is revealed to be pregnant and gives birth to male octuplets. Bloom is challenged then to perform a miracle and succeeds by eclipsing the sun with his little finger, just as he did in Lestragonians. Mm. Still, things turn against Bloom and he's charged with being a false messiah and set on fire. The citizen, old turncoat that he is, enthusiastically approves of this outcome. Still, Bloom the Martyr is then lamented with a choir of 600 voices singing Alleluia. So back in Dublin, <laughs> it all sounds very underwhelming back in Dublin, doesn't it? Zoom, um, Zoe brings Bloom into Mrs. Cohen's brothel where he finds Stephen Lynch and two prostitutes. Stephen is now making another drunken point and this time about his theory of reconciliation of opposites and eternal return. Right, which I think is then when we have the fourth fantasy, which is a very brief one involving Bloom's grandfather, mm. um, Lipotio. Um, who sings the praises of three of the prostitutes and encourages Bloom to have, quote, a good old thunk with one of them. <laughs> the fantasy ends as a firm uh, heel-clacking tread is heard on the stairs and the door opens as Bella Cohen, described as a massive whore mistress, enters, which fades to another fantasy. Indeed. In this fantasy, Bella becomes Bello and <laughs> Bloom's pronouns shift to she and her. Bello puts his foot on Bloom's neck and promises to shame it out of him. Bello then sits on Bloom and after a bit of masochistic beating leads us through Bloom's sins of the past, including dressing up in Molly's underwear. By now, Bloom is one of Bello's girls and starts being pimped out as the brothel's newest attraction. Bello transports Bloom back to the party when he first met Molly, except it's not the party where he first met Molly. It's actually a party that his daughter Millie is attending and is being courted by one Bannon. Then the nymph from the photo of the marital bedroom... Who Bloom has just had drinks with at the pub after Oxford Indeed. Sun. Yes, Bennett. yes, yes. Um, then the uh, the nymph from the, the marital bedroom of the Blooms appears and thanks Bloom, first of all, for rescuing her from the pages of a softcore porn magazine, but then also can't hold back her disgust at what she has witnessed from her privileged position on their wall. Um, there are a few hazy the moments... The walls could talk. <laughs> if the nymphs had a voice. Thank God they can't. Um... Then there are a few hazy memories of a trip to the Pulafuka waterfall, during which we apparently learn that what Bloom did earlier on the beach was not his first such public adventure. <laughs> and then we are finally transported to Health Hill, where Bloom proposed to Molly. Despite the various shames of this fantasy, Bloom seems to emerge refreshed and renewed. So uh, to protect himself from Bella slash Bello Cohen, Bloom retrieves his potato from Zoe, restoring to him his talisman and his safeguard um back to the kind of materiality of existence bella asks who is paying for their adventures stephen offers again very drunkenly uh, and cannot actually pay for all of it so bloom makes up the difference for what stephen cannot pay this then leads to bloom offering to take care of stephen's money since he can't really do it and stephen um ambivalently says yes then zoe uh, goes on to read her, the visitor's palms. She reads something on Stephen's palm that alarms her, although they don't really go into it. And then when she refers to Stephen's, uh, sorry, Bloom's palm, um, she describes him as a hen-pecked husband and fades to another fantasy. Yes, which is a quick little uh, diversion in which uh, Boylan, Blazes Boylan, arrives with Lenehan um, and during which Bloom is finally made to confront the scene he's been avoiding thinking mm. about all day, mm. namely Boylan and Molly together in his bed. Um, 
this fantasy ends with a quite a strange uh, scene, little sort of a vignette, I guess, which we'll probably come on to discuss, where both Bloom and Stephen gaze into the mirror, their faces overlapping from what I can understand, and the image of Shakespeare rises up between them. So that's funny because I had that as, as in the real world. <laughs> well, there you go. The mysteries of Shakespeare's certain. always poking his way into brothels. <laughs> they, they suddenly gaze into a mirror and whether or not Shakespeare's face appears IRL or in fantasy, it's unclear. Um, what happens next is that Stephen, Zoe, Flory, Kitty, Bloom, Bella and Lynch have an enormous dance to uh, this song or waltz, My Girl's a Yorkshire, Yorkshire Girl. girl. Mm-hmm. Fade to fantasy. Fade to a final heartbreaking fantasy um, in which Joyce summons up the image of the 11 year old Rudy. Oh, hold no. on. There's well, loads well, you, gotta, you crash a chandelier first. Yeah. Which is the fantasy word? It's after the dance. So she just talked about the dance. Uh-huh. Stephen's conducting with his stick. And then Stephen has the vision of his mom, the corpse of his mom. And then he smashes oh. the chandelier at the point where his mom is, is, uh, is mm. haunting him. Okay. That's critically well, important. There we go. There you have it. Lex just did it. Yeah. <laughs> so then in real life, Stephen breaks Bella's chandelier, rushes out leaving Bloom to pay for the damage. Bloom then follow then runs to follow Stephen. More fantasy. Final fantasy in this case, to Is coin it? a phrase. Well, wait, 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 wait we're not <laughs> have... at the final fantasy because <laughs> he, he has to, he has to, Stephen is getting in trouble with the, with the, yes, with the yeah, soldiers. Yeah. And so, and so, as Bloom is just has rediscovered his virility and his uh, and his you know talisman, his potato, he also recovers his presence of mind mm-hmm. and is able to essentially um, wedge Stephen out of trouble, both at the brothel and he's about to get his, his, the crap beaten out of him by these by these yeah. uh, angry and drunk um, British soldiers. And Bloom steps in, calls him, you know, oh, hold on, professor, and then everyone's like, ooh, professor, and uh, mm-hmm. and gets uh, gets Stephen out of harm's way, who's just talking nonsense to try to provoke these these soldiers. Um, and just as um, uh, Bloom thinks he's gotten Stephen out of trouble, one of them is really carried over the top of the, sol- the soldier and punches Stephen in the face, pushes him down. Um, and knocks him unconscious. Knocks him unconscious briefly, uh, which could have been, you know, curtains for Stephen uh, because Lynch goes and runs away. And this is the moment, of course, that Joyce himself lived uh, in 1904. And just as Joyce was saved by a dark, um, potentially Jewish Dubliner, uh, Alfred Hunter, uh, Bloom steps in and heroically um, makes sure Stephen is okay and, and takes him away to safety. And then as they are leaving to safety... There's a final fantasy <laughs> uh, in which Joyce um, sums up the image of 11-year-old Rudy reading Hebrew, kissing the book and smiling. I will say uh, the other thing that happens in real life, which I thought was lovely, is as um, Bloom is trying to wake Stephen up, having been knocked unconscious, he first calls him Mr. Dedalus out of respect, then resorts to saying Stephen and, and shaking him gently, at which point Stephen stirs and his his impulse upon waking up is to murmur some lines from Yeats's "Who Goes with Fergus" mm. poem before falling unconscious again. Um, Bloom mishears this, thinking that Stephen is referring to a girl called Ferguson, and remarks to himself that this is the best thing that could happen to him. In other words, the best thing that could happen to the strongest Stephen is that he has a girlfriend called Ferguson. Voila. So and let's um, let's take a breath. Yeah, well, that, I mean, fittingly, that was a very tough recap. Yeah, 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 yeah. For the longest no, and toughest episode in the book. I think definitely um, that shows uh, the kind of the chaos, of, uh, particularly the final few minutes there. 
exactly how difficult it is to get to the get get to, to the, the heart the, of the, heart the matter. It, it, it takes a village to read Percy. For sure. <laughs> it takes a village. <laughs> to it takes a lot it. of and a lot of presence of mind. <laughs> so, <clears throat> okay. So the first question we had for Cersei, uh, and it really gets to the point of of the recap is who is dreaming what here. And I suppose a kind of follow-up question would be, what is the boundary between dream and life? Yeah, so, so um, you know, Budgeon uh, points out, Frank Budgeon and James Joyce, the Making of Ulysses, who, again, is the consular officer and painter who is Joyce's uh, drinking buddy and one of his closest friends, who gets kind of the, the backstage view of Joyce writing Ulysses and Joyce giving him all kinds of um, uh, inside scoops. Um says that uh, this is a, a dream play, and we'll come to what, what a dream play is, but, but in, a, in a naturalist style, meaning that there's absolutely no difference on the page between the IRL, as you, as you um, contemporaneously put it, and, <laughs> and, the, and the fantasized or visionary or hallucinated um, uh, sections. And so it's all one, which is why it makes it so mm. bloody difficult mm. to recap. Um, and uh, and Budgeon says, but remember the golden rule, keep your eye on Bloom, mm-hmm. right? To figure out what's going on, uh, keep your eye on Bloom. <laughs> keep your eye on Bloom. But then why is Bloom hallucinating when it's Stephen that's drunk? Right. This is a really important question because Bloom <laughs> has had a couple of drinks uh, over the course of the day. He had a cider, he had a glass of burgundy at lunch. Mm. But he's certainly not in the deeply debilitated state of of Stephen and Lynch. Stephen, by the way, by being though, though being very drunk, is still um, putting some pretty erudite, interesting stuff mm. into the world about gesture as a universal language. He's speaking fluent Latin uh, to his buddy and talking about music theory, the dominant and the tonic. Just as so, an aside to our listeners, that's pretty much how Lex is when he's drunk. <laughs> Come on June sixteenth and you'll find out. Um, <laughs> and um, but Bloom is 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 as Budgeon points us to is the one who is the he's the consciousness that's giving birth to all of these visions. So what is going on, right? Um, and here are some interesting differences of opinion. So Budgeon Budgeon's theory about this is that hallucination is not really a departure from the world. It's mm. part of our mm. human experience. He says the observed fact is that hallucination is common human experience. The art consists in treating it as such mm-hmm. and the, why the, these animals uh, and all this animality, the essence of the animal, says Budgeon, into man, metamorphosis, seems to be that man becomes an animal when he loses his many-sided human wholeness. One of his functions gets out of hand and usurps the powers belonging to the governing authority of his mm-hmm. virtuous republic. Mm-hmm. Beastliness is one-sided. Mm-hmm. And so in a sense that the hallucination is, is, is double. It's the losing of our second eye and, and, be, and regressing into this um, mm-hmm. unhealthy, animalistic, drunken, mm-hmm. um, slum uh, environment of, of society, but that it's also um, that hallucination completes um, our, our humanity, that, that without understanding hallucinations, you don't understand what it is to be human. So that's one theory. That's mm-hmm. so interesting. And it just, it, it brings us back to the one-eyed and two eyes mm-hmm. conversation that we have having this whole time in the sense that um, possibly to look at the world in a one-eyed way is is beastly. And and so so that's one theory. And the other one that I find also really interesting, kind mm-hmm. of divergent, but maybe maybe complementary, is Declan Kybert, who um, treats not as a hallucination, not as a kind of a completion of of human personality, but rather as a kind of a shamanic journey that Bloom needs to go on. So what Kybert says is that the point of Circe, the point of all these visions is, in his words, 
to release the transformational energy present in everyday life by directing that energy against all the sensors and barriers which blocked it off. Mm. Um, he calls these hallucinations part of Bloom's new secret shamanic knowledge. Mm. In the sense that he has to, he has to, you know, faire émerger. He has to, you know, mm. bring to the surface all of these conflicts that we've been missing in the inner monologue, because the inner monologues can also lie. We lie to ourselves. But that that this is a journey Bloom needs mm. to go on to deal with the darkest um, corners of his of his own character. And Lex, and you had made the point that this is the journey that Stephen cannot make, right? And and so we see that Stephen reacts to to his confrontation with his mother by lashing out by mm. by using his his uh, walking stick, his ash plant, to smash the chandelier in this Wagnerian moment. He cries out "Nothung," um, which is what Siegfried in, in the opera of, of Wagner um, cries out um, in a in a kind of a lashing out against against authority. Um, but uh, but Bloom at the end he he reconciles right mm-hmm. he goes through this horrific series of the most humiliating also exhilarating when he's temporarily the emperor of the world and and, a, <laughs> and kind of a pacifist humanist socialist techno utopian um reformer um but he goes to the highest highs and lowest lows of his own guilt and his mm-hmm. own aspirations and his own pain and comes out the other side uh, a hero. He comes yeah. on the other side, saving human, uh, saving uh, another human being, Stephen, from from a disastrous, um, disastrous yeah. moment. I'd like to just um, reflect on that word hallucination as well, because I think of the two um, descriptions that you just gave from Budgeon and Kybert, I think mm-hmm. hallucination probably tacks closer to Kybert's interpretation. That idea of a kind of shamanic knowledge, as if as if there's almost like another plane. Right. Exactly. Yes, to kind of leave the earthly plane in order to yeah, get yeah, to yeah. the deepest side of himself. Mm-hmm. But I wonder, like in in, in reading it, it's sort of. I wouldn't say exactly that they had more of the tenor of of daydreams, but I think there's definitely something interesting. Like we've talked a lot about the um, the sort of the stream of consciousness, and I think one of the limitations of trying to portray that on the page is the sh- trying to capture the sheer expansiveness of a sort of a daydreamed digression. And I think one thing that 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 Cersei does probably better than any any other moment in this book, any other moment that Joyce. Uh, a sort of experiments with stream of consciousness is it sort of it tells stories it unravels scenes which could happen in and again IRL in the blink of an eye in mm. fact right um, and so sort of I it's not that I would take issue with the, the term hallucination but I think maybe something like something like vision in a way because I think Bloom is never particularly detached no from the real world he, no. he is connected but his mind at the same time is working essentially in parallel and sort of I guess there's this, this sort of symbiotic relationship between his visions, his daydreams, and what is actually happening. But also, I, I would I would ask you, Lex, if you think so. We're gonna we're gonna get onto Freud because he's really one of the big thinkers here in the background <clears throat> of this episode. But something that he conceives of over the course of his work throughout his life is this idea of defense mechanisms, mm. which is essentially they're essentially they involve distortions of reality. Um, that we ourselves create defense mechanisms so that we're better able to cope with situations. And so to your point and to Kybert's point about um, this being kind of transformational, would you say that this, according to a kind of Freudian um, schema, is sublimation? In the sense of if, hmm. if sublimation is the accept, most acceptable of all defense mechanisms and it's the expression of anxiety in a socially acceptable way, and if we think about that in relation to something like Stephen's anger, which we might say is a repression or certainly a regression, mm. does um, 
this transformation map onto sublimation in your opinion? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great question. I don't know enough about Freudian uh, Freudian theory, but I it strikes me that sublimation as you classed it as a the best of defense mechanisms. Mm. It it doesn't seem accurate to me for the for the following for the following reason that that um, Bloom is transformed. He's no longer he's defenseless at this point, right? We've seen him in his inner his interior monologue throughout the day defend himself from the pain of knowing that Boylan is about to go have sex with his wife. And he cuts off, you know, his little thoughts that he has, he'll cut them off he or, you know, he, he doesn't even can't even refer to Boylan's name in his mm-hmm. own mind. And so what Joyce is doing, just an, an unbelievable stroke of genius that Joyce is doing is say, okay, now you've seen, you, we've taken you one step that literature has never done before into the in, inner, uh, inner monologue of Bloom. But what if the inner monologue itself had secrets? Mm-hmm. What if the inner monologue, we think, you know, that people are honest. No, people are not honest themselves. They deceive themselves. They try mm-hmm. to protect themselves mm-hmm. um, because, because you know, being human is so, is so painful. All these mm-hmm. traumas of, of Bloom losing his child and, 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 and his relationship with his wife. And so Joy says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll see you and I'll raise you, mm-hmm. right? We'll go one step further and we'll have a dream play that goes into the subconscious. Mm-hmm. And Bloom is the protagonist, is mm-hmm. the hero in the way that Odysseus has to go into, into Hades. Uh, Circe sends him literally into the underworld. That Bloom is, is sent um, because he's on this journey. He doesn't even know why he's on this journey. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, you know, I don't even know why I'm here, but Stephen is the best of that lot. So it's, it's almost as if Bloom knows that he's on a mission. He can't really understand it. And these hallucinations are a way for him to not sublimate, but to confront these things that have been boiling in his subconscious all mm-hmm. through the day. Mm-hmm. And he has to now grapple with them. He has mm-hmm. to be put on trial, all of his own feelings of guilt, all of his own feelings of sexual shame, all of his own feelings of civic and political exclusion. Um, he has to he has to face them. Do you think this is only coming because Bloom is accepting now that he has to face them? Maybe, yeah. Like he's, I, I, he's lying on the couch, as it were. Yeah. Right. And why and why is that now? I mean, maybe he's also he's he's defenseless in a sense. It's the end of the day. He's tired. It's, you know, it's midnight. He's been up. And so it's it's when we're at our most defenseless sometimes that we're forced into these Mm -hmm. moments of of truth. It's but it's a great question. Why? Why now? And why? why I would then? add two things, which is that it seems to me, and um, we'll get onto this later. This is this is more than just the day. This is his entire life. This is his entire. Right. He's reckoning right. with his entire it's life, and right. he's reckoning with and his ancestors and well, his father's well, I, life, and I his mean, grandfather's exactly. Life. I mean, you could go, you could go to the into as always. We go into the very micro, the very macro. You go to the very micro of what was the sublimated thought that he or the repressed thought that he didn't want to uh, deal with ten seconds ago. What was the trauma? that his great-great-great-grandfather mm. um, didn't deal with hundreds of years ago and that he's living out the legacy of. I think the other thing that's really interesting about the traumas that Bloom has experienced is that it highlights um, the Freudian conception of the soul in the sense that he's he's dealing with the id, losing a child, which is the primitive kind of instinctual um, uh, vision of, of the soul, but he's also dealing with the superego. I would argue that hmm. um, sleep, you know, having your wife cheat on you, while that might feel primitive and instinctual, it's certainly learnt in the sense that it, it gets to this idea of moral conscience. It incorporates the values and morals. Cuckold is a social role, right? right? Exactly. It's, it's a social construct, this idea of the, the values and the, the morals antlers. of society, hmm. which are learned from one's parents, from one's society, from one's culture. Um, and then we have Bloom kind of as the ego in the middle of this, trying to negotiate between the id and the loss of his child and then the superego and the, um, the the cheating of his wife. 
you, you put me in mind, Alice, just now of a, of a great TV show that's about to come out, uh, a second season called Russian Doll. Have you guys heard of this show? Yeah. Natasha Leon, Russian yeah. Doll. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of my favorite shows of the, of the last few years. And it's it's very Circean in, in, in its um Well, she, fall, she falls down into the into the pavement, doesn't she? Yes, and dies over <laughs> and over again. Yeah. And, and is also in, in thinks that she's hallucinating yeah. this time loop that she's in, this kind of mm. Groundhog Day in, in the East Village um, time mm. loop. And what we see over the course of the show, season one of the show, is that this is really about submerged trauma, the first trauma of having of having a mother who is mentally ill. And mm. then ultimately we have a hint in season one that this goes back to her grandparents who were Hungarian Jews in the Holocaust. Yep. And so uh, Hungarian also uh, blooms blooms uh, Hungarian mm. roots uh, mm. in Sambatelli. Um, and all, so, yeah. yeah. You know, it's just, it's all there. Right. You know, and the question is, how do you deal with it? And yeah. and uh, I was reading a New Yorker profile and Tasha Leon was, was, you know, was very philosophical about this, that, you know, is the bet, is the, is, what's the way to respond to trauma, to respond to these kind of deep traumas? Is it to try to bring them to the surface and therefore confront and either sublimate or, mm. or conquer them? Mm. Or is it to radically accept them mm. in a kind of almost like a Nietzschean, you know, Greek tragedy s- mm. sort of way? Mm. And uh, and so Russian Doll uh, uh, very much grapples with that. I think Cersei does as well. Mm. Is Bloom supposed to, um, is this a happy ending in the sense that Bloom is confronting his demons mm. and conquering them? Uh, and if so, what is the reconciliation? What's the version of, of the homecoming? And we'll see it, his Nostos, you know, in, in, uh, in, in the in the chapter just after this, but it's not like Rudy comes back and in is a real life you know Pinocchio boy again. Um, his his pain is still his pain, but I think we see that he has been able to act and act in a humane way despite his pain. That he I mean this is a very painful epic. I mean Bloom is humiliated over and over again, and yet he's able to come out of it. With this Odyssean, you know, polytropos, you know, twists mm-hmm. and turns. He's coming up with these excuses for how to get Stephen out of trouble, taking care of Stephen's money, saving Stephen when he gets knocked down. So Bloom comes out of it a, in a way a, a, a better man. I think the, just to take a step back here, the other question we could ask is, and this is, I think, the question that Joyce is also um, maybe unconsciously, consciously posing, is what is the role of art? Mm. And this also to the point of Russian Doll, what is the role of art? Um, as it helps us work through our collective yeah. trauma, mm-hmm. not on a personal level, in society-wide, how does how does art intervene in this question? Very good. Um, and uh, this is sort of the, the word the word made flesh, right? As as we as we saw in Nausicaa, that uh, that art is um, is Joyce's way of dealing with the the trauma of a, a mother who wanted him to be something else than mm. he was, a feeling like a, a stranger, an exile, uh, and yet writing the national epic of Ireland from, you know, distant, having been cast out of Ireland, um, his father being a failure, you know, and, and a um, sort of ridiculous figure. All of these things Joyce had himself mm. suffered and his feeling of kind of Catholic guilt and sexual exclusion, that that his experiences of 1904 of being saved by this dark Jewish Dubliner and having connected with, with um, Nora on June 16th in this deep emotional and sexual way um, he brings to life in in one of the greatest novels ever written Mm. Um, should we should we look at least before we leave the hallucinations behind what were some of the things that you guys noticed um, this is this is much more about you I I don't have much to say about the hallucinations um, so I'll I'll just maybe say one or two things Mm -hmm. that I noticed Adam do you want to do you want to say a couple things you noticed um, for me, it wasn't so much the um, the specific details as the tenor of mm. the hallucinations. And it put me in mind of something. Mm. Obviously, I mentioned Jerry earlier, but also of um, a theatre which was 
um, very much uh, à la mode in Paris um, at the time that the Joyce was was here and was writing it, which I referenced in the introduction was mm. Le Théâtre du Grand Guignol, mm. which was founded in the late 1890s and which closed. Um, I think it was in, it closed in the maybe in the early fifties, um, essentially with the director at the time saying once uh, you know once you've had Buchenwald, uh, a theatre like this can't really um, <laughs> you know it doesn't really have anything else to say that the world has become the Théâtre du Grand Guignol. But this this idea and it's become it's become a term Grand Guignol. This idea of the sort of the the grotesqueries, the excesses, the giganticism mm. of the um, of the performance was very much something which was um, which was sort of uh, taking place in Paris at the time that Joyce would have um, would have been uh, composing this and you know I have no um, I haven't come across it referenced in any of the in any of any of the texts that I've read that Joyce was 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 familiar with this or, or visited mm. this theater um, but it just seems to me an interesting an interesting parallel to make that alongside Jerry alongside Freud with this kind of the unearthing of the kind of the the monsters or the supposed monsters of the unconscious, um, it's extraordinarily I think sort of yeah deeply shocking to the the, the cultivated um, literary artistic mindset of the early of the early twentieth century. I mm. think the other thing to note um, is that to take this literally as a play is is misguided in the sense that. This is entirely unstageable. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Although we'll so... try our damnedest <laughs> as a radio play, won't we, Adam? <laughs> and this is so. This is a point that Colleen makes, and it's a point that I think Joyce has inherited from Shakespeare, his rival slash um, drinking buddy, as Lex likes to say, <laughs> of Budgeon. So Colleen writes, this episode is not really dramatic in the sense of being stageable as written. In fact, the action is far too wild, and I'm sure you had the experience reading this, um, to be staged in its raw form. The changes of the scene and character are bewilderingly rapid, apparently arbitrary and improvised, and would impose impossible demands on any staging cinema. And this goes back to a point that Adam's been making throughout the series, um, can manage a lot better and the episode is better considered as cinematic than as dramatic mm-hmm. it is a screenplay he argues rather than a script and this um, mm. yeah. picks Completely. up from uh, Antony and Cleopatra which is uh, Shakespeare's play from 1606 and um, in which, which has been described even in the in the early 17th century as montage-like. Mm-hmm. It includes 40 separate scenes. The action jumps between Alexandria, Italy, Syria, Athens, and the Roman Republic. Um, contains 34 speaking characters. Uh, and Cleopatra, at the end, brings live asps onto her body uh-huh. to kill herself. Um, we would eat me. So the the question is um, why is Shakespeare why does Shakespeare write Antony and Cleopatra knowing that he can't stage it? Similarly, why does Joyce turn to the form of a play knowing that he can't stage it, or what is it doing for him? Um, I think we discussed at the very beginning, or at least I certainly made the point in the first episode, that Kyber argues in his introduction that Joyce was one of the first to face the challenges of how to accommodate expanding, expanding zones of scientific and technical knowledge using the resources of language. And here, in this episode, I think Joyce, like Shakespeare before him, continues to express his discontent with an experimentation with form. Mm. Yeah, Volta Electric Theatre, right? At, right? Yeah, well, no, absolutely. And so we talked about, so Joyce was an, a cinema enthusiast. And mm-hmm. I, I completely... In the first wave of cinema enthusiasts mm-hmm. that ever and, there were. And, and it's interesting because when I was when I was thinking about how this was uh, unstageable, I was trying to think, you know, it, 
if you were going to ask somebody to film it, who might you ask? And for me, it was Bunuel. Like clearly, the sort of the way that the the images are sort of juxtaposed, the way one thing becomes another, and yet obviously Joyce prefigured the surrealist filmmakers by what ten years, five ten years, yeah, 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 that's all. And so that makes you think that they were probably all drawing from a similar pot, like watching the kind of the 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 magic that films. Could, could produce in a way that the staging right. play couldn't. It was the technology mixed with the incredible collapse of all values that came mm. out of the First World yeah. War. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Those two things happening simultaneously, yeah. the beginning yeah. of cinema and, and the, the horrific uh, destruction of, of yeah. World War One. And I think mm. um, the influence of Freudian theory. And well. the influence of, of, of the unconscious. Right, because, and this is the other important point to make about um, this episode, is that Freud writes of dreams as scenes mm-hmm. in mm. his work. So they're slow enactments and this is Colleen's slow enactments of some underlying obsessional moment. He refers to the, quote, primal scene and highlights the acutely visual quality of mm. dreams, the way that everything that is in the dream is unconscious has to have visual representation. Mm. Mm. I was just going to say one more thing, is that when um, reading Patrick Hastings, the, mm. the scene we described about um, Bloom and Stephen and Shakespeare in the mirror, uh, Hastings used the word, he refers to the crossfade, between, right. uh, between the scene, which is, of course, a very cinematic term. But all I think all of this is just it's it's a restlessness with with the the form, with the technicalities of form. Joyce is mm. feeling possibly constrained, and here again, he's he's reinventing it and pushing up against it. Which begs the question: What do we learn from these hallucinations? Right. So a couple a couple of things that that I think help unlock some of the um, some of madness. The some of the madness and some of the clues we, that we've gotten from from previous chapters. So, why is Bloom um, putting him? And we have to, you know, as in dreams, right? You are you are all the characters in your dreams. Mm. Um, say say the Freudians. So Bloom is putting himself on trial, right, mm. in this first big hallucination. Um, and uh, his defense is that he's doing good to others. And the voice of authority, the voice of of, of justice here, official superego justice, records his plea as the prevention of cruelty to animals. We see Maffe, the the Italian lion tamer who Bloom you know condemns and condemns the circus cruelty to animals and so we have again Bloom's connection with uh, animality in a very different way that Homer did so for for Homer and and you know Budgen refers to this being transformed into an animal was losing um, your humanity right it was it was regressing uh, to a to a bestial stage and we could also look at this you know as as, as you said Adam that that Joyce is trying to you know turn Homer or turn Shakespeare back on themselves and to say that 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 um, Bloom's connection with animals is very different. In fact, it's an expansion of consciousness mm-hmm. and of empathy and a feeling for, for other beings, not a, a regression. So I thought that kind of his connection with animals and his defense uh, of animals and against cruelty to animals is is um, is, a, is a deepening of Bloom's um, of Bloom's consciousness that he's that he's putting on display here. Um, the the new Bloomusalem section, which I mean for obvious reasons, I I love and reread all the time. <laughs> what, are the, um, what are the obvious? But let's reasons? but let's just let's give Bloom some credit here. Like, what is he railing against? Uh, he's railing against tobacco and the terrible effects of tobacco and for the tramway public transportation. Now, are there two more <laughs> beloved causes? Um, you know, to me and and my and my fellow, you know. Uh, um, you know, good government types. Macronia. Um, so. um, so, so you know, the Bloom is Bloom is picking the right fights, right? He's he's defending um, uh, women and peace and pacifism and uh, and public transportation and public health, right? In a time and in a place in Nighttown, in a brothel mm-hmm. where women are being forced to prostitute them, 
themselves by the by poverty. Um, this is a, a, a place outside of the official kind of sanitation. So it's it's horrific. We see people who are uh, struggling with all kinds of mental and physical handicaps who are not being cared for or who are being actually mocked and made fun of. So we're seeing the failures of, of Dublin mm-hmm. 1904 on hu- on display mm-hmm. in these fantasies. And we see Bloom as the as the great reformer um, calling for um, religious reunion, new and just distribution of property, compulsory manual labor for all, the grant of electric dish scrubbers, and a general <laughs> amnesty, a techno-socialist humanist paradise. Uh, th- those were uh, Blamier's words. And then uh, Bloom's words, free money, free rent, free love, and a free lay church in a free lay mm-hmm. state. Um, uh, we must note that, of course, this episode is the first episode of Ulysses written in Paris. And this sounds like a description of the Paris we all, on our best days, feel like we're living in uh, or would like to live in. Um, but of course, he's also carried uh, into monstrosity, and we see mm. how power corrupts even a great pacifist, you know, humanist socialist. Um, so that demagogue. he's demag- demagogue, and so he's he's mm. um, nodding, you know, his enemies to to death. You know, women are committing suicide over him. He's kissing the bed sores of um, various people in, in this very kind of uh, melodramatic. He dumps um, Molly. He dumps Molly for Christ's sake, and so um, you know, we see again how how. Um, he he's carried over the limit. What the Stoics would say, propertea. He's 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 his his running beyond the, the the finish line. He's he his his humane and human humanistic impulses um, carried too far become monstrous, and and the hallucination. I think shows us that it's an incredible it's an incredible scene. Um, the last little bit uh, that I wanted to comment on the womanly man, right? So again, right. all of Bloom's wo- wo- you know womanishness, the bellow bella, uh, the bellow bella, and and him him announcing he wants to have a baby, and his eight um, children named for various gold and silver things. Like um, it's kind of a callback to, to Plato's Republic. It also is a callback to the scene in Macbeth when the the kids um, run around in kind of the end of Act Three, I think. Yeah, and 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 so, but what happens to Bloom as a as a result of having to confront um, his womanishness, which again, his superego is the one confronting him. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the voice of society that says you're not manly enough. Mm-hmm. And then when he's talking to the nymph, the statue, his trouser button bip it, it bursts, which is a sign that he has recovered his sense of himself and his sense of his manliness. But it's not a violent manliness, right? It's a manliness of creativity and and heroism and solidarity. And he jumps into action, you know, saving. Um, saving Stephen and, and uh, ultimately, as we see, uh, winning some kind of uh, potential reconciliation. Now, um, anyone who's watched Seinfeld knows that the the uh, the line um, written up on the wall in the Seinfeld <laughs> writer's room, and you, either of you guys remember what Larry David wrote on the walls? No, no learning, hugging. no hugging, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> no learning, no hugging. And, and Joyce, I think, is also kind of in the spirit of this, whereas he, and as we'll see now, we're getting toward the end of Ulysses, Joyce does not want to give these characters a Hollywood happy ending, mm-hmm. you know, here in the early days of, of cinema. He's not yeah, yeah. Um, indulging in kind of a sentimental fantasy that uh, everything will turn out great. And uh, at the end of this day, June 16th, all, all you know, sundered hearts will be made whole. And so the moment where he sees Rudy, where he sees the son that he, that, that he died, that died on, on his 11th day, and now he's 11 years old. Yeah. And it's it's an incredible moment. I don't know if you guys also saw that the... the um, deep and painful ambiguity because he sees his son. His son is is well dressed and erudite, reading this book, but his son doesn't see him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you guys think about that? I don't know. I mean, I, I was so I was moved. more moved by that scene than I mean, in this reading, funnily enough, than than I have been before. Like, there's mm. something 
Oh God, I think it's probably because I feel I know Bloom better now <laughs> than I had on previous readings. Um, but yeah, I mean, to your, to your question, Lex, I, I, I hadn't thought about that. I also, I wonder if it gets to the question of, and we had spoken about this, but to what extent do Bloom and Stephen connect mm. in in this episode? I mean, so so Bloom's caring for him, Stephen's completely off his face. He, he, does, he does say this thing when, when Bloom walks in. Um, he says, let's see, when, when, when Bloom walks in, um, he says time, times, and half time, which goes to your point about the kind of the, the disruption of, of normal time in this process. Mm-hmm. And Stephen, mm-hmm. in his very kind of poetic and over-intellectual way, something in Bloom triggers something in Stephen um, that, that seems to connect with the action of, of, of the episode as a whole. But you're right, Alice, I don't think they, I don't think they, I don't think Stephen um, realizes what's happening. Or certainly he doesn't seem to reciprocate any, mm-hmm. you know, brotherly energy or, or, or um, <laughs> filial energy to, toward Bloom that right. Bloom is starting to discover he has for Stephen. Right, so maybe that's reciprocated the fact that Rudy doesn't see him and that he sees Rudy. Yeah, well, certainly. Well, and so let's. I just want to talk briefly about this notion of time because I think it's um, it's pertinent in the sense that when Adam and I were summarizing, and I was reading what really happened, and Adam was reading, uh, the fantasies, and then we of course we have the Odyssey in the background. You might have wondered, well, this is what a minute, thirty mm-hmm. seconds. <laughs> this takes place over, and and this is you know this is part of the schema that we come up against in the sense that each episode begins at a specific time, but the time here is very very slippery in this episode, and this again inscribes in um, kind of tradition of meditations on what happens uh, to time in art. Um, and kind of the most famous mm. example of this is in Cervantes' Don Quixote in chapter 23 when um, uh, they head into the the cave of Montesinos um, because it was people were worried at the time that Cervantes was writing that um, the experience of reading the codex, the experience of reading the novel meant that time stood still. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the fact that you weren't thirsty, weren't hungry and didn't need to go to the bathroom and people were very freaked out about this so i just wanted to read a little bit um from chapter 23 because i think it it certainly highlighted my experience um of reading cersei so just kind of from the middle uh don quixote don quixote says at this point the cousin said i don't know senior don quixote how your grace in the short time you were uh down there saw so many things and conversed and reacted to so much how long did I go down, uh, asked Don Quixote. A little more than an hour ago, responded okay. Sancho. That cannot be, replied Don Quixote, because night came upon me, then morning arrived, then night and morning came again three times. So by my count, I've been in that remote area, hidden from our sight, for three days. My master must be telling the truth, said Sancho, since everything that happens to him is by enchantment. Maybe what to us seems to be an hour must seem to be three days and nights down there. That's what it must be, responded Don Quixote. And did your grace eat during it all that time? Signor mio, asked the cousin. I didn't eat a bite, responded Don Quixote, nor was I hungry. I didn't even think about it. And do enchanted people eat? They don't eat, responded Don Quixote, nor do they have bowel movements, (laughs) although it's thought that their fingernails, beards and hairs do grow. And do enchanted people sleep, Signor? asked Sancho. Certainly not, responded Don Quixote. At least in these three days that I was with them, none of them closed an eye, and neither did I. So, this is this is begins 
um, a long uh, legacy of thinking about how art disrupts mm. Mm. Yeah, the yeah. id and also notions of time. Yeah, a legacy which brings us right up to uh, Inception. Indeed, very <laughs> sure. good. And Russian Doll, for that matter. I should also say, though, that, um, of course, uh, enchanted people in Joyce's Ulysses do have bowel movements, as, <laughs> as we have discussed repeatedly. So, I, so, Adam, you also pointed out, and I, we can't leave this episode without talking about Carl Jung, yeah. you said that, that we also get the thoughts of people other than Bloom. Yeah, so this was something, and I, I won't, you know, um, claim credit for, like for the picking soap. up on this. Well, we, <laughs> well, we get the thoughts of, of, of inanimate objects, obviously, but we also get the the sort of interjection into Bloom's fantasies mm. of elements from earlier on in the novel that had nothing to do with Bloom. Yeah. So one that um, Patrick Hastings points out on is um, that at a moment, Molly, a uh, fantasized Molly, uh, exclaims, Nabracada feminium. Nebracada feminium. Ah, one more time. <laughs> Nebracada feminium. Which, as Patrick Hastings points out, comes from the book of secret prayers and spells mm. that Stephen thumbed through mm. during Wandering Rock. So this is not part of Bloom's... Not Bloom, Stephen! Exactly. So this is not part of Bloom's um, Bloom's unconscious at all. Um, now, as we were discussing this episode, I think Lex and I had the realisation simultaneously, um, you know, we've talked a lot about um, sort of collective consciousness and we haven't yet talked about the collective unconscious. And after a quick bit of um, Googling, Lex identified that the first mention of this by... Uh, Carl Jung was in a 1916 essay so contemporaneous with the composition of Ulysses obviously Carl Jung was a Swiss Zurich based psychoanalyst so while I haven't found any evidence that Joyce read Jung I mean the idea that Joyce didn't come across these theories when he must have yeah right? he, he must have done um, so we have this quote from um, from Carl Jung which I think feeds in quite nicely to um, to what we've been talking about and the essential thing psychologically is that in dreams, fantasies and other exceptional states of mind, the most far-fetched mythological motifs and symbols can appear autochthonously at any time, often apparently as a result of particular influences, traditions and excitations working on the individual, but more often without any sign of them. These, quotes primordial images or, quotes archetypes, as I have called them, belong to the basic stock of the unconscious psyche and cannot be explained as personal acquisitions. Together, they make up that psychic stratum, which is which has been called the collective unconscious. Do you think, Adam, that goes to your point about the arranger? I think then? it does. Yeah. I think so it absolutely tell, tell does. us about that. Okay, so the arranger, um, so this is a feature, this is a, a figure that attentive listeners will uh, remember that I've kind of nodded to in, uh, in previous episodes uh, and then sort of deferred talking about um, uh, until, until later episodes. And I think as we come to Circe, this explanation can be deferred no longer. Um, Again, before I start, I should say a lot of my understanding of this figure has been kind of gleaned from uh, Patrick Hastings. And anyone who's listened to the interview with Patrick um, at the start of this this podcast series will know that Patrick has said that he thinks that a lot of he thinks that he puts a lot of emphasis on the arranger, perhaps more than a lot of scholars. So that should be um, that should be borne in mind. The concept of the arranger was first described or at least first named by David Heyman in, in, in his book, Ulysses, the Mechanics of Meaning. And he takes the name from a phrase Joyce uses repeatedly throughout the book, namely retrospective arrangement. Now, Heyman takes this as Joyce hinting to readers of the real importance of this concept to any understanding of the novel. So you might remember from Oxen of the Sun, the sentence, in a retrospective arrangement, a mirror within a mirror, hey presto. 
Now, as Hastings notes, we can read the climactic hey presto as a note of announcement, of Joyce declaring the success of his project, while the mirror within a mirror indicates how the arranger, unlike the narrator, who we'll come on to in a moment, can, quote, um, look back on the novel, which itself is a mirror into the essence of human life, thought and feeling, hence a mirror within a mirror. Or, to put it another way, Hastings also says that the arranger might most simply be described as the witty and omniscient mind of the book itself. Mm. Now, on a personal level, this idea really appeals to me because I think one of the things I love about Ulysses, and which is often overlooked in discussions of it, is Joyce's consciousness of the codex, in a sense. Mm. I mean, that he repeatedly acknowledges the, the bookishness of the book. Um, so we know that Joyce was an admirer of Tristram Shandy, another book, possibly the first book, apart from perhaps Don, Don Quixote, Quixote yeah. which fully embraces its own bookishness. Mm. It's perhaps not unsurprising that he should embrace Stern's approach and take it one, two, three, four degrees further. Mm. Um, so there are repeated jokes which only work on the page. I mean, UP up being mm. the um, probably the most obvious example, as well as the kind of procession of the Healy's ad from mm. one page um, to another, marching through Dublin, marching across our pages, um, which always feels to me like Joyce kind of essentially having fun with the sort of the static nature of, of text on the mm. page. There's also, of course, the, the headlines in the... In the Aulis, it's just what I thought of. Um, and trying to avoid spoilers here, the famous dot in uh, Penelope. Mm. Um, and so the arranger is somebody who scholars like Heyman, scholars like Hastings have attributed responsibility to for these 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 kind of activities um now you might ask okay how does the arranger differ from the narrator um and for this uh, we need to turn to uh, hugh kenner and in his book on ulysses and kenner writes the arranger exists side by side with a colorless primary narrator who sees to the thousand little bits of novelistic housekeeping no one is meant to notice, the came's and went's, said's and asks, stood's and sat's, without which nothing could get done at all. Lounging in this drudgish shadow, the arranger may now and then show his hand. Mm. So, for example, in the earlier chapters, the interjection of headlines in Aeolus, the woe of Scylla and Charybdis, the giganticism of Cyclops, all could be attributed to this figure. Mm. Um, as the book goes on, the contention is the arranger takes more and more space from the narrator. Um, so it is he and not the narrator that shows off his musical mastery in Sirens, as demonstrated by Lex a couple of episodes ago. It is he and not the narrator that mocks us with the 32 parodic genres of Oxen of the Sun. And then when we get to Circe, well, we might think of this episode almost as the arranger's solo. Mm. Um, so for again, mm. quoting Hastings, quoting Heyman in this case, um, Joyce seems to have taken the whole book, jumbled it together in a giant mixer and then rearranged its elements in a monster pantomime. Mm. Mm. Um, so just coming back to the kind of the bookishness of the book point, uh, in taking dozens, perhaps hundreds of the characters we've already met mm. and transforming them in this grotesque performance, Joyce, via the arranger, is demonstrating not just his control and mastery over the book, but the inherent malleability of everything he sets down on the page. Mm. Uh, it might be taking it a little bit far to say that this prefigured the kind of cut-up technique later pioneered by William Burroughs, because we never get the sense that Joyce has anything but kind of complete control over the text. Um, but there are perhaps some interesting parallels to be drawn. Mm. Um, finally, um, the figure of the arranger is also informed, I think, by knowing a little bit of the effect that writing Circe had on the rest of the book. Um, now, I don't know about you, but I tend to think of writers as kind of genius of 
holding the whole universe of their book in mind from the very first mm. moment they put mm. pen to paper. Mm. Um, you know, we know this isn't the case, but I think it's something to do with the way we mystify genius in our culture that um, the the genius and the the artist become these figures that we expect these kind of Herculean feats from. Mm. So it's possibly enlightening to know that it was during the composition of Circe that Joyce not only took far longer than he expected, uh, but it caused him to draw up a chart to help him understand yeah. what he himself was up to, yeah. as well as to go back through earlier chapters to seed ideas and rearrange various elements. Mm. Um, so Joyce himself said that he probably wrote a third of Ulysses when the book was at its proof stage and was indeed making changes right up to the day, the day that yeah. the first editions were mm. printed. Mm. Um, so much so, actually, that the first edition contained the note um, the publisher asked the reader's indulgence for typographical errors unavoidable in the exceptional circumstances. Mm. The exceptional mm. circumstances being that Joyce was kind of a pain Unwilling to finish. Um, so um, perhaps it could be interesting to think of the narrator as Joyce, the dutiful storyteller, plodding his way through the events of June 16, 1904, mm. and the arranger as the more playful Joyce, filling his book with tricks, trapdoors and booby traps, which, as he predicted, will keep the professors busy for centuries. Animus. Here ends the essay. <laughs> <laughs> it, and it really is a beautiful essay that you wrote. For, um, I think that your point about all of the elements of this book finding their way into the episode made me think about um, just living inside the universe uh, of Ulysses, of Dublin at this time. Um, I think it's it highlights um, a point that we're all living through at the moment, realising that the planet is a closed system and that there is no way out mm. of everything that's happening on the planet. And I will also depart um, from Hastings, who cites, and also he cites a, a passage from Ox and the Sun to make this point. So he, uh, Joyce writes, there are sins, or let us call them, as the world calls them, evil memories, which are hidden away by man in the darkest places of the heart, but they abide there and wait Yet a chance word will call them forth suddenly and they will rise up to confront him in the most various circumstances, a vision or a dream. And so I think mm. departing from this phrase, the evil memories hidden away by man, you can kind of remove the normative evil of this and just think about actions, people and thoughts. And whether we're thinking, again, very, very macro, so whether we're reckoning with huge events of the past, the legacies of colonialism, mm -hmm. imperialism, slavery, the millennia of sexism and misogyny, all the hours of um, the unpaid for care economy, or the, mac the micro, you know, this is maybe a possibly, I had an ups up upsetting thought on my walk to school this morning. All of this will come to pass. Mm -hmm. There is no way out of it. And we are within it, and we must reckon with it. Um, and this this That's gets like the Nietzschean idea of eternal recurrence, right? Sure, and it, I think it also gets to something that is often talked about now in in Anthropocene studies, which is people economists are having to rethink what we think about when we think about externalities. So externalities, from an economic perspective, is this idea that what occurs in the economy with production or consumption. Um, that impacts a third party is not directly related to the production or consumption of that good or service. So it's the cost or benefit caused by a producer that is not financially incurred or received by the producer. 
And we're basically, we can no longer externalize everything that's happening in mm. the Western world anymore. All of it is coming back to haunt us, mm-hmm. uh, whether psychically or materially, which is to say, you know, I buy, I, I said this the other day, you know, you buy your T-shirt, uh, your cheap T-shirt from H&M that was made in Vietnam, that the, the effects of that purchase are no longer hidden. Yeah. Because maybe they occurred in the second episode or in the fifth episode, you know, to, to push this this metaphor of Ulysses down the road. They're going to come back in, in, in the Cersei episode. They're going to come back um, and they're going to haunt you and you have to deal with them. And, and, jo- and Joyce, therefore, gives us, as, you, as you've just wonderfully outlined, the, the, the two messages of psychology mm. and ecology are one mm. message, which is mm. it will all come back, mm. right? That that mm. what what is suppressed will come back, mm. and what is thrown away will, right. will will come back. Right. And what I think is interesting, I was just thinking this morning about how people and other people have made this point too, but how 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 people in the twenty first century are trying to find new externalities. Mm. Um, I would argue rockets that, to Mars. Well, exactly. there's rockets to Mars. There are these bunkers that are being built in Kansas, New Zealand. There's also the creation of metaverse, which mm. people have said is is just another form of externality. But I think, and this is why I will defend art, uh, I'll defend certainly theatre. Um, that's why I think that actually watching <laughs> theatre on a screen isn't the same thing because I think that theatre more than any other art, but s- s- fine novels. They provide a way out. They provide this, this idea of the Shakespearean green space, right? So if you look at a play like As You Like It or a play like Midsummer Night's Dream, what's happening in those plays? We're moving from the French royal court to the forest of Arden. In the case of As You Like It, we're moving from Athens to the forest that lies beyond the city walls of Midsummer Night's Dream. It's in these green spaces, it's in this art um, that one can externalize life and what's happening in your life and you and you live through it. And as you say, you, you, you reckon with it. Right? And you reckon with it. I think w- that's a great place to kind of arrival. Oof, yes. you need a drink. <laughs> give, give this one some absinthe. Should we, should we do a couple of noticeables? Go for it. Well, Alice, I'm going to throw it back to you again because I saw you wrote Me Too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so do you want to say the, the Me Too moment? Yes, and yeah, yeah, can... the Me Too moment. So the Me Too moment, you, you mentioned it. It's the first hallucination, um, the first kind of major hallucination when, when Bloom himself puts, him, puts himself on trial um and you know to this point of all things must come to pass these are all the kind of small sexist asides um you know maybe you touch your colleague's leg maybe you call her uh, hot and she doesn't want to be um and so there were, i guess commentators have said of of this moment in the book that it is a kind of me too moment in the sense that um all of his uh difficult behavior comes um, back to him, although you'll point out, Lex, is that he himself is putting himself yeah. on trial, as opposed to which, what happened which, in and, our society. And we we kind of we kind of t- you know talked a bit about this uh, right before the show that that um, this is what we would hope mm. that every badly behaving male and all of us have badly behaved at, at one moment or another in our lives that that we have to reckon with our own behavior mm-hmm. as opposed to being called out and shamed on on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And because the, the, the call-out culture, yes, it's righteous in one sense. And of course, these women, uh, these voices, uh, social media has given a way for women all over the world to, to connect um, through through these hashtags. And that's, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. The downside is, of course, that the person who is responsible for the bad behavior, you know, they lawyer up, they, they, they <laughs> batten down, they... They, you know, they get they, they retrench. And, and so instead of having a kind of what Joyce is doing here, which is reckoning with the bad behavior from our past, um, it becomes this kind of shout fest. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's an important point that 
when Joyce is doing this and when you know when Bloom is doing this because one thing that really struck me in reading the kind of uh, you know, let's say the the great pieces of male writing from the twentieth century was how this kind of the ambience of kind of brothels and visits to prostitutes right. was just, was just there unquestionably mm. oh, right yeah. up until the sixties mm. and seventies. Oh yeah, and this is Joyce writing mm. in the late teens, early twenties of the twentieth century, reckoning with this uh, in a way that very few male writers did until recent decades. And I, don't, I think that should. You know, he should be credited for that. Well, it's only, he's not even, I mean, he is reckoning with it, but it's also a complete inversion of the, the power dynamics that mm-hmm. we might see in those novels, right? So that um, instead of men subjugating women, he is, yeah. he's lying on the floor and this large woman, Bello Bella, I mean, even in terms of gender, he's way ahead of yeah. his yeah, yeah, time, yeah. right? Is, is, has got her, his foot on his neck. Mm-hmm. It's a total inverse of the paradigm yeah, 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 that we'll yeah. see in other novels. And, and, yeah. and one imagines that this is something that Margaret and Jane of the Little Review and Harriet and Sylvia would have would have identified mm-hmm. and said that this is something that's special about Joyce. Um, that, that he gives voice to these to these injustices, but also to these unheard voices. Yeah. That yeah. these you know radical queer women, as we've said, who who without whom Ulysses would never have have um, been yeah. born, um, were also I think co-authors in a mm. sense of yeah. of um, of some of this. Um, good noticeable. Adam, any noticeables? No. Um, I have. I have just. I ha- go ahead. Well, there, there's also the, there's just the point um, that about the cannibalization that we haven't made, mm. which is that which is to to kind of I would the the, the conc- another conclusion of Adam's wonderful essay about the arranger um, is that his interest in literary form. Um, as you say, is four stages ahead of, of other people at this time. And it has been remarked, here I'm reading Kibbard, um, that he's actually, it's a, it's a strategic um, noticing of, of literary devices. So he writes, Ulysses is unusual for a major work in that its strategies change as it was written uh, by way of the writer's reaction to the reception of earlier episodes and with no clear sense of the total conception, as you say, until the final phrase was written, the book, which um, has allowed all prior generic scaffoldings to be erected, used and then fall away, now performs this act upon its own earlier episodes before attempting further newness by cannibalizing himself. <laughs> Joyce ensures that no later writer can do to him as he has done to Homer or Shakespeare in the same way that the self-accusations of Bloom and Circe prove him against further allegations by others. That's interesting. So Joyce's own anticipatory strike against himself preempts further attacks. Yeah. Although there's an interesting irony to that as well, because it makes it it puts me in mind of something that um, Tom McCarthy said in the event we had here on the day mm. of the centenary of the publication was that it was sort of Joyce's stated aim, in a sense, to make Ulysses the last novel, to essentially kill mm. off the novel as a form in in writing the the ultimate version mm. of mm. this artistic form, and in fact. Um, he did exactly the opposite of mm. that. He broke open the novel That's to so such an extent that he released its universal possibilities mm. and the novel has gone on to become everything and mm. nothing. Mm. <laughs> That's such uh, a great point. Yeah. Mm. 
So the, the, the two little noticeables um, I wanted to, to toss in, one about Nothung. So this is the great cry of Stephen <laughs> after he says, non serviam, I will not serve, and smashes the chandelier, which, which represents the, the authority, the authoritarian pressures that have been on him as an artist, as a son, uh, as a Catholic, as an Irishman, as a, as a poet. And um, so what is Nothung? What does this mean? It doesn't mean nothing, of course. It means needful in German. Uh, it's the name of Siegfried, the hero of um, Wagner's uh, Ring of the Nibelungen. Um, and uh, here's, the, here's the short version of, of why Siegfried um, uh, forges this sword. So he is raised by uh, a dwarf, kind of a, a, a ghoulish creature named Mime, who forges swords and then he then throws them away. Uh, Siegfried must learn from this dwarf stepfather that his mother died giving birth to him. He reforges the sword and this great kind of Wagnerian moment, no thong, no thong, <laughs> what force could make you shatter? And he uses the sword to kill the dragon Fafner, who has been uh, you know, hoarding the, the gold of, of the Nibelungen. Um, the Wanderer, a figure um, that maybe you know, we, we can see, the Wanderer, it was uh, Wotan, the father of the gods in disguise, confronts uh, Siegfried, uh, who then destroys his staff. Again, we mm. have the staff as a symbol of, of authority that uh, is used to, to, um, to rebel. Uh, and finally, um, uh, Siegfried passes through the Ring of Fire, getting this from the, the Wikipedia on Siegfried, emerging, <laughs> emerging on Brunhilde's rock. At first, he thinks the sleeping armored figure is a man. However, when he removes the armor, he uh, removes the armor, he finds a woman beneath. At the sight of the first woman he has ever seen, Siegfried at last experiences fear, right? And he has been told that he is the, the realization of a prophecy of only he who does not know fear can reforge this sword. So at the sight of the first woman he's ever seen in his life, Brunhilde, he at last experiences fear. In desperation, he kisses Brunhilde, waking her from her magic sleep. Hesitant at first, Brunhilde is won over by Siegfried's love and renounces the world of the gods. Together they hail light-bringing love and laughing death. So just as 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 Stephen is is mouthing these words to Yeats, uh, the, the Yeats's mm-hmm. poem that is his 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 deep fear and guilt. Uh, this is the song he sang to his mother on her on her deathbed. And Bloom interprets this as Miss Ferguson. Um, uh, we have uh, you know Stephen as the Siegfried like rebel uh, who is forging this sword uh, to to assert his artistic independence against all of all of these authoritarians. But then ultimately he he is uh, or he will be after the pages of Ulysses are done um, won over um, by the love of a woman. In this case, um, Joyce's uh, magnificent handjob. So um, that was noticeable number one. Noticeable. My last final noticeable. Um, we, remember we talked about the stick in the mud. Uh, yeah, in, in which, which comes back. So Molly, Molly comes back into into Cersei, calls him his, uh, her poor little stick in the mud, um, which uh, which we remember from him throwing the stick into the beach uh, in, in Nausicaa. Um, and and you know right right around that time, Stephen is also calling back. Remember we had talked about the dominant and the tonic. He's playing these perfect fifths, what we call in mm. you know power chords uh, mm. for those rock and rollers out there. And Blamiers has this fantastic. Uh, line about this that I'm just going to finish this this noticeable here. Uh, amidst the trivial chatter of the whores, Stephen stands at the pianola playing perfect fifths and talking highfalutin drunken nonsense. His state of mind is expressed in the form of a brief dialogue with Lynch's cap, which mocks his clever, clever generalizations and challenges him to bring his high-sounding chatter about the perfect fifth to some conclusion. He tries. <laughs> it's like us on Bloomcast. Just like us on Bloomcast. <laughs> 
and dilating further. The dominant tonic interval is the greatest possible ellipse consistent with the ultimate return to the tonic as its conclusion and fulfillment. Thus, it reflects the journeying of God in making and entering a world intended to return to him, the daily journeying of the sun around the earth, the journeying of a Shakespeare from Stratford to London and back with all that it produced, the journeying of a commercial traveler, a bloom presumably, from home and Molly and back to them. Um, note that Bloom's one completely satisfying emotional fulfillment today came with the resolution of dominant into tonic at the end of Mapari in, in mm-hmm. Sirens. So the 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 dominant tonic, the Amen. Um, I love it when you sing. Right? Is uh, is uh, is is brought back to us in yeah. Stevens uh, in Stevens' absinthe uh, drunkenness and Harry Blamers, who wrote the line I, I just wrote, uh, a Yorkshireman, the the author of the New Bloomsday book, uh, which he wrote in 1966. Uh, his first novel was in 1954. He was later head of the English department at the University of Winchester. He died in 2017 at the age of 101. Oh yeah. So we had said, what is this? What what can we conclude from this? Well, it must mean that reading Ulysses and meditating Ulysses in the course of your life only extends one's life. Yes, it only extends one's life, as many headaches as it as it brings uh, uh, in Ox in the Sun. So, so, so Harry Blamers, who wrote this, wrote the lines I just uh, read in the Bloomsday book, who lived till 2017 when we were celebrating Bloomsday here uh, at the bookshop, studied at Oxford in the 1940s, just after James Joyce's death, and his tutor at Oxford was C.S. Lewis. Uh, the author of the Narnia books. So, um, you know, it's not that long. Hundred years is not so long right. from from Joyce to uh, to to Blamers and to us. It's nice to have that um, that confirmation um, that reading Ulysses extends, extends your, life. your life as well. Because I, I think of that 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 old joke about quitting smoking. You know, does a does it make you live longer or does it just feel longer? Okay. You know. <laughs> Does reading Ulysses make you live longer, or does your life just feel longer? Well, tune in next well, time. Sure, <laughs> tune in next sure. time, where we'll uh, we'll uh, we'll give you the the long-awaited answer. On which note, take care. Happy reading. A très bientôt.